Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's such a pleasure today to be here with Brian Barnwell, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, just purely, mostly on just brain power and <laughs> intellect. Former Santa Barbara City Council member, former longtime planning commissioner, and I could be here all day with my former, former, formers because you've done so much in the city. And I used to cover you. I used to report on you as a journalist. And I got to tell you, at the time, I didn't really appreciate it as much as I should have. But as I've had more time with future councils, I find myself always thinking, damn, that, that Barnwell boy, he would have really, really just said it how it needs to be said right now. And I was kind of spoiled back in the day. So we're going to have a great conversation today about the past, the present, the future, Talk everything Santa Barbara and kind of just go back in memory lane a little bit. <clears throat> Brian Barnwell, it's a pleasure to be at your home. How are you doing today? Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for that uh, laudatory introduction. I'm not sure I deserve it, but uh, I'm doing fine. It's a wonderful day, and I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, Brian, we met in the early 2000s, and I want to get there in a second. But let's start off with the present and housing the housing situation that the state is requiring local jurisdictions to build housing. We have these constant conversations about affordability, market rate, uh, missing middle, low income. We live in a city that's built out. There's conversations about downtown. We have an AUD program. I write about this all the time. And now we have election year, so everybody's locking housing. What is your view, Barnwell, on, on uh, creating more housing? Should we? How much of it? Where should it go? How do we fix this affordable housing crisis? Well, to begin with, it's, it's an entire course at UCSB. Okay, so there's an awful lot there. I don't know if we can touch it all now, but I'll, I'll hit some things and maybe it'll cause you to ask me other questions. I think... And I didn't realize this until just now, but I, this is an important thing that the city does not recognize, that we all need to recognize. It is not a single word. It's not housing. It's housing transportation. It's a hyphenated word. And any time we talk about housing, we need to include transportation. Um, otherwise, we can really muck it up. Uh, now, I would, if I were on the council, let me talk about the council just a second. Um, because I think it's the, uh, the framework of the current council that needs a little tweaking. Um, I greatly admire everyone who's on the council. The flaw that I see, and it's really not theirs, but they came from the, uh, the district election process, and they just jumped into a campaign and they won. I don't think that they have taken the long view to recognize that someone else in their district is going to be taking this seat at some point. In the old days, when it was a citywide thing, the sitting council, the, the, the sitting council, would kind of inquire in the community, who wants to be on the Harbor Commission? Who wants to be on the Planning Commission? Who wants to be on the ABR? And in that process, take people and kind of groom them. It's almost like in baseball, you know, you have a, you have a farm league farm teams, so that when they get to the majors, they're not totally dazzled by it all. We don't have that structure in place, and I think it's essential. Um, 
each one of the council members that we now have needs to be needs to actively encourage and support people within their district by appointing them to some commission, the planning commission, not probably not the planning commission until later, but the <laughs> Parks and Rec or Harbor or something like that, so that those people can then find out how does the government work? What's staff like? What are the meetings like? What's it like to sit there and have to listen to people and then be able to respond intelligently? I think the current council right now is trying to figure out themselves how to do that because many of them don't have that experience. They just got thrust in the public eye. For example, very few of them seem to understand that they're in charge. No, I mean, they're the leaders. Uh, one of the things that Robert's Rules of Order says repeatedly is that you are a decision maker. You sit up there to make decisions. And you don't get to abstain unless you really got a reason, uh, make some decisions. And then don't take the cue from the staff, because the staff will make stuff up and give it to you. If you notice the agenda, it's all staff driven. Everything that's on the agenda is something that the planning department or the transportation department or whatever has given to the council to make a decision on. Well, the council needs to twist that around and give back to them some things that the council wants the staff to work on. I don't see that, and that's, I think, one of the huge, uh, one of the things that needs to be corrected right now. But to go back to housing, for example, if I were on the council, uh, I'd ask, have we done an inventory of city-owned land? What kind of land do we have that we could put housing on? Now, they might come back and say, well, you know, we're using all of our land. But we're not. We're using it, but we're using it ineffectively. Take, for example, um, the downtown public yards where the old baseball diamond used to be near uh, Arnoldi's restaurant. Oh, yeah. It's on Coda Street. Go to a highly urbanized city like Los Angeles or Long Beach or anywhere else, and they would take that land and use it much more efficiently than we are. We've spread it out, asphalt parking, and we got a little of this over there. If we looked at that, and those are not expensive buildings to knock down and reconfigure, but if we can reconfigure those two blocks, I'm sure we'd find probably an entire city block mm -hmm. to build housing on. Yeah. I would also encourage that we join up with other less savvy governmental groups, like, for example, school districts is the one that I think of. To their credit, and I don't think they even realize it, they have now teamed up with the Santa Barbara Housing Authority. Uh, the school district is a classic example of a government agency that wants housing for teachers. We need housing for teachers. They need to step back and look at the ground they now have that they could build housing on. The Santa Barbara Housing Authority is an outstanding organization to do that. They build apartments all over the place. So I think one of the first moves when we talk about housing is we need to do an inventory, an entire South Coast inventory, and it needs to include the county. My God, the county's got so much land that's underutilized. It's got an old building that they put up there back in the 50s when we didn't care what we did. We had almost like farmers. Mm -hmm. I got a barn over there. I got a barn over there. I can keep the pigs over there. But if you pay attention to it, you can use that land more efficiently. I think that's one of the biggest obstacles to our beginning to have a meaningful discussion of housing is, where's the land? Yeah. Where can we actually build it? Instead of wringing our hands and saying, oh, we need housing, we need housing. Now, you can't depend, you really can't depend on the private sector. Um, a little sidebar, as you know, my profession is real estate appraisal. Yeah. And I was a general contractor for a long time. 
And right now, not only do I do real estate appraisal, but I do land use consulting. So looking at land and being efficient about its use, about what it can and cannot do, that's what I do for a living. And so that's why I speak in this way that I'm talking about right now, where uh, that would be one of my first things I do for housing. And then I think one of the models, stop me if I'm talking too much, but one of the models is a Cottage Hospital. When they knock down St. Francis Hospital, they put housing up there for their nurses. And it was one of the first attempts by an employer to find housing for their specific employees. I think that concept would work really well for the school district, for example. Um, probably work good for police and fire. There's a lot of land that could be used for that. Now, I, I know that when you get into that discussion of, well, it's, it's a specialized police fire, it's a specialized teachers, what do we do about, you know, Joe Sixpack, who also needs? We think about that, too, and how we can do it. The Housing Authority, again, is an excellent, excellent um, resource for that, because they do it. They build them all the time. So, I mean, that, and as I said, transportation is super important. Um, and not just transportation in the getting from point A to point B for your work day, but one of the, one of the concepts now is if you're going to build affordable housing, we don't want any parking on site, right? You've got to get rid of your car. I mean, this is the modern world. We've got to get rid of our car. But that's not true. People still need their cars. They may not need it to go to work and back, but they need it to go down to see Grandma in L.A. or something like that. So how do we handle that? Um, is it conceivable that we could assign one or two zip cars to an apartment house, and there would always be a car there for people to use to go back and forth? But we have to start thinking about transportation as being an integral component of the housing. One of the things that the state law, the, uh, the ADU, uh, accessory dwelling unit, don't you find it interesting that the state ADU is the same letters in a different configuration than the AUD? Yes. <laughs> I find that so funny. deadline, that makes me pause and make <laughs> That's sure so I'm right. <laughs> uh, but the, as you probably know, the origin of that, uh, that state law, the uh, accessory dwelling unit, was Sacramento saying, what are we going to do? I mean, we're not building any kind of housing like we did in the 50s. We already have it. That roof is already there. It's the back bedroom of a three-bedroom house where the kids are already going to college and mom and dad are living alone and they can hardly make the payment on their trustee anyway. Why not let them rent that out? Huge hurdle through the code of Santa Barbara and almost every other city code is parking. Right. You've got to have a parking stall if you're going to add another unit on the property. State said, let's get rid of that. And so those kinds of things begin to make the, the actual creation of housing easier. Because who wants to let a car drive the discussion of how a man and a woman and their child are going to live? That's preposterous. Um, so those rules are old-timey, and I'm glad the state did what they did. I'd like to see the city of Santa Barbara really get behind some of these ADUs. I know a lot of neighbors don't like all the cars. They don't want the strange people, but, you know, that's the... Uh, not only is it NIMBY, but everybody started. Somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah. And everybody's family came from somewhere in California. That's a shoot match. And they even came from China. So we all came from somewhere. So to begin to limit the people in your neighbors, well, we don't want them here because, you know, they're coming from someplace else. That's like, totally wrong. Um, anyway, big discussion. Like I said, it's an entire semester at UCSB <laughs> on housing. <laughs> what about, you, you mentioned transportation, but what about 
some sort of high speed rail. You know, we, we started this conversation about about uh, Amtrak before the pandemic. It started. Ridership was not great. Pandemic hit. They ended it. Now there's talk of Metrolink partnering with Ventura County, SBCAG, whatever their affiliate organization is, Ventura and Metrolink, and having that come down here. Should there be a shift um, that it's okay to live in Ventura County if we have reliable, steady transportation, or no, we want people living where they work? Oh, there's no question about it, transportation. Uh -huh. If you've got an easy way to get from Ventura to here. Um, let's go back to that rail thing a minute. The history of the rail, as you probably know from fifth grade, is the government gave the land to the trains. Said, yeah, we're going to give you some land because these trains are super important. So we're going to give you some land or we're going to sell it to you for super cheap. We got a train track. We could put two rails there. In, in general, there's only one, but there's there's a side rails bypass so the trains can pass each other. I know it sounds pretty radical, but I'd like the government to step in and say, listen, uh, we want this to become a public utility thing. Because um, the train companies, I mean, if, I love trains, right? They take you back to the, the age of cowboys, but they're so poorly run. The tracks, one of the reasons that you probably know we can't put fast trains on these tracks that are here in Santa Barbara is because the support of the rails is so inadequate. Mm. If you're going to run a fast train, you've got to have some really solid support. The support out there is just a bunch of gravel rocks with some you know, big pieces of wood. Mm. Um, but we could change that, and that could be the right way. Rather than what we're trying, and I, I applaud what we're trying to do, but it's so ponderous to plow through the Central Valley as they're trying to do now with the link. Uh, I applaud that. I think it's great, but that requires land acquisition and, and a whole bunch of stuff. We already have the land. Another thing is, as we put together the uh, the freeways, if you go down to Los Angeles, you can see many of those wide freeways, and some of them are utilizing the center section for a for a, a metro track. Yeah. Uh, that's another right of way we already have. Um, how can we utilize that freeway right of way for a metro link? Um, I'd like. And this goes to another thing, item number item number two on my what should we do, housing transportation is number one. Number two is regional governance or sharing of governance and ideas. Um, you got a lot of egos on any elected board, and they don't want to give up power. But we need to get together with the county. We need to have joint meetings of the city council of Santa Barbara and Galita and Carpinteria all the time and with the county, and begin to share ideas because nobody knows where the, where the city of Santa Barbara stops and the county begins. We don't see that line in the ground, but we feel it when we move through this geographical area, and we wonder, why is this this way and it's not that that way? Um, and it goes back to housing again. And you may be aware that the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce is no longer the Santa Barbara Chamber of Commerce. Right. It's, it's South region. Coast. Regional, yeah. yeah. It includes CARP, Santa Barbara, and Goleta. Brilliant. Those guys are figuring it out. I don't know if you've read their handbook on housing. It's a very, very pointed discussion of how we get to housing. And that's the Chamber of Commerce, which in the old days was just a glad hand group of a bunch of white men going around and, you know, having coffee in the morning and drinks at night. But now they seem to really want to settle in and solve some of these regional problems, and they realize it's regional. Mm -hmm. So transportation is regional, and that would include Ventura, certainly includes North County, 
but it also just includes these, these, uh, these elected bodies. Another one, <laughs> when I was on the Planning Commission, it took me a year or two to realize the question is, who's the 900-pound gorilla in the discussion of rental housing in the city of Santa Barbara? It's City College. Oh, yeah. City College has tens of thousands of students. Unlike the universities, the city colleges are not mandated by law to create housing for them. Yeah. So those kids come down here and they look around. Right. And they begin to squeeze out, rightly so, I'm not making a judgment on it, but they push out the housing level which is satisfactory for a town of 95,000. Santa Barbara's got plenty of apartment units for 95,000 people. But not for 95,000 plus them. We don't have it. Why don't we go to the city college and you talk about uh, poor use of land on the uh, on the new campus. You drive in the driveway, and there's this old, like I said, the old farmer attitude. To uh, we got parking all over, big huge parking lot, big planters and stuff like that. Let's squeeze that together. Maybe we even stack it, two story, and then we begin to build with the city college housing, if for no one else than just the professors because they can't seem to get professors for the reason that nobody can, because the housing is too expensive. But build that for professors. UCSB does it, but they have a budget that comes from the state, so it can happen. Um, but that's the kind of partnering I'm talking about, where elected boards begin to kind of share these decision-making processes and think regionally. Uh, that, that's just huge for right. being able to solve these problems. You know. Uh, I want to talk to you about that housing hotel issue that mm. has come up. Um, mm. I was talking to Peter Lewis, a uh, developer, and he kind of said to me that there's this tension between building housing or hotels in the downtown area because the city does not allow enough density for a developer to have a housing project pencil out. It would need to go higher, taller. And if you own a building downtown that, it, you know, maybe it's retail, maybe it'll take the restoration hardware building or something like that, you're still getting money. You're still getting some kind of uh, lease uh, amount every, every month. But to knock it down, go to nothing, and then build something takes many years. And so can you talk about, like, is that true? Like, is it it's just a money loser for a developer to try to build housing downtown because they're not going to get enough units? The city's not going to allow them enough units. Because the other side you hear, and I see, hear this every week on the city council, it comes to my email box. These are rich, fat cat developers who just want to exploit individual renters and maximize profits. And so they uh, don't want to build enough affordable housing or they'd rather build hotels because that'll make them more money. Can you kind of unravel that a little bit? Uh, I mean, is it true they are fat cat developers and they just want to make as much money as they, they can or it's more complicated than that? <laughs> well, there isn't everything more complicated than you think. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's, it's true, but I, I don't want to be so pejorative and negative about it. Um, there's this concept in real estate called the highest and best use. And the highest best use has these four components of it, and one of them is it legal. Um, but one of the most important ones is, does it give the greatest dollar return? Is it not only just financially feasible, but it is, is it the best financially feasible plan? For example, a piece of real estate might very well be the site for a restaurant. 
But the best use of the site might be a three-story building with two floors of apartments and the restaurant on the bottom. That's the concept of highest and best use. They think that, developers think that way all the time. What is the best way? Not just what is one way, but what's the best way? Now let's go back to restoration hardware. Like it or not, and I particularly, I don't think I do, but like it or not, Amazon and others like the other organizations like Amazon have just gutted the retail market, gutted it. And I don't know if you can put on your, I wear this hat all the time, my appraiser hat, my contractor hat, when I walk down State Street, vacancy, 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 vacancy. One-story retail, one-story retail, that date back to the 20s when they were built. They're never going to rent those. At an adequate, they're never going to rent those at an adequate return for the property owner to say, all right, thank you. That's number one. Number two, many of the property owners purchase their land and the building when there were profits associated with it. And now it's a bitter pill for them to accept the fact that they need to lower their rents. Mm -hmm. Every time I see, and my family always, they turn to me and ask the question, but why did this business go under? What happened? I, I say, I, I guarantee you, rent was part of it. Rent is so expensive for retail down on State Street. Now, let's take restoration hardware, knocking it down. It's retail. Not only that, it's one-story, first-floor retail. Who wants to be in that business? So let's go back to another thing. During all of the economic downturns that I've lived through, and there have been about four or five, a couple of them were pretty big, people never left their house. They left their office, mm -hmm. and they closed their little business somewhere, but they always need a place to sleep. So when everything goes to hell in a handbasket, Residential will prevail. Now, maybe the rent rates on the apartments will drop, but they will never become vacant. Not true with retail and not true with office. And the downtown office space, which I look at all the time, <laughs> it's a wasteland. It's a wasteland. The studies in San Francisco, for example, only 60% of the office buildings in the central core of San Francisco are even rented. Mm -hmm. And of those, less than half are being occupied because people are working from home because of the computer revolution, etc. So how do offices and retail compare to housing for land use? You can't hold a candle to it. Housing dominates. Mm -hmm. Let's go back. I'm going to give you, this is a big topic, but let's go back to how did we get the city of Santa Barbara's average unit density, AUD? The zoning code has been pretty much the same for decades in Santa Barbara. You can build apartments and you can build condos. How about it? Mm -hmm. Well, all the developers, without any exception, said we're going to build condos because we can build them nice and fancy and rich people from Santa Barbara, or excuse me, from LA will come to Santa Barbara and they'll be a summer home. Mm -hmm. They won't even stay there 12 months out of the year, but they'll buy them for a high price and the developer builds them and he's done and moves to the next one. You put in apartments, you got to manage those things. You got to stay on top of them. And tenants tend to beat things up or they vacate on their rent. You know, the normal living circumstances, which we all we have to recognize. But when you sell a condo, boom, you're out. So every single residential unit that was built during my time of almost eight years on the Planning Commission was a condo. We all thought, how can we fix that? They thought, well, uh, look at all the little 800 square foot apartment units on De La Vina. They have low rent. 
we, the council, I wasn't on the council at the time they did it, but that council misunderstood and they, they uh, compared the small square footage to low rent. So they implemented the law. They said, okay, we're going to let greater density, but we want them smaller, smaller units, eight or 900 square feet, which will encourage you know, middle income, lower middle income people. Well, once again, the, the, real, the marketplace with the savvy developers is one step ahead of the council. They said, we love that. They build the 900 square foot unit, but they trick it out. Nice kitchen, great dishwasher, blah, blah, blah. And they rent it for a high amount, and, and there's people for that. And so the target of the middle to low was not defined just by the size of the unit. Right. Now, in 40 years, those will also be low income. What they failed to realize was the De La Vina units that are so cheap, they're old and they're worn out and they're tired, and that's how come their rent is low. The only way that I see, and I've been in this business a long time, it, the only way that I see really having affordable rental is the government has to step in. They have to mandate it. That's the Santa Barbara Housing Authority. Um, I don't see any other way except have the city schools build on the city school property. Let me give you an example of that. I'll a little sidebar and then we come back. But the retail value of a finished residential unit, whether it's a house or an apartment, one-third of that is represented by the land. And when developers go in and look at a piece of vacant land, they want to pay for that vacant land based upon the concept, I'm going to put in 10 units and they're going to be worth a million bucks each. So for the land, I can't pay any more than one-third of that million. So for the land, I will pay approximately, say, $300,000 per unit because I know what I'm going to get at the end, the million bucks. So one-third of the retail value, finished retail value, is what they can afford to pay for the land. But if you already own the land, then you don't have to worry about that. And that's where the school district comes in, and that's where the county comes in. One-third of the costs that a developer would have to go through are already taken care of. Now, so that's how the government can step in and build these things for much less and also squeeze up the density and you have teachers that already live. They work at Santa Barbara High School and they live at Santa Barbara High School, so the transportation component is taken care of. The density component, which the city thought that they could do an end around by squeezing down the size, didn't really help because the developers, of course, just made it trickier. Uh, can you increase the density? Uh, yeah. You can. Maybe the city should consider increasing the density. Maybe the city should consider additional height. I know that's a, it's a terrible word, but if you think about it, really grind it to a fine powder. Why not put the high buildings along the freeway? We're already talking about trying to hit the middle, right? We're talking about people who don't want an ocean view. They just want a nice little place close to downtown. Why not create a corridor along the, on, along the freeways where there's a little bit of sound affecting the property, but you can create sound walls. And the land there would create a sound wall for the city, and the height of those buildings would not be as intrusive on the downtown feeling of Santa Barbara if it's along the freeway. Why don't we do more of that? Now, there's this other thing, and this is where the rubber meets the road. Santa Barbara is really a special place. And you know you've been around. You don't, all you have to do is cross the county line. Everywhere else in the wide world is just not as nice as we are. 
And everybody who's here is just lucky as lucky can be. You and me, and, I mean, you know, I wasn't born and told my mom when I was one years old, you know, I want to live in Santa Barbara. <laughs> no, the, the circumstances you find yourself in eventually lead you here. Sometimes you take it for granted, but we all need to be super grateful. And we also, also need to know that the reason Santa Barbara is so fabulous is because we have kind of monitored what we let happen in terms of building. We have these height limitations. We have the red tile roof downtown. We have all these regulations. We can't throw those out because we don't want to be, you know, some crappy little place in Southern California. So it's this balance between how do we keep the charm and also allow the population to increase. To go back to what you said a moment ago, we do allow the population to increase here a little bit. But we also allow the population to drive in and out from other places or to come in and out from other places through public transportation. And that then brings you to the price. I mean, gee, I, I do this all the time. The cheapest house in Santa Barbara is a million bucks. You can look up, you can open up the MLS right now and go, what's the cheapest house? Well, a couple of knockdowns are like maybe 900,000. The Galita Track House, three bedrooms, two baths, track house, million two, all up and down. Well, who can afford a million two? I mean, if you take a, you know, a 10% down payment, it'd be 120,000 bucks. A 20% down payment, which is typically what the banks like, that's 240, that's a quarter of a million dollars for Joe Sixpack and his wife to buy a little track house. It ain't happening. Another sad component of that, when you look into the record, is you'd be shocked, and I don't know the statistics exactly, but it's shocking. I want to say like 30%. 30% of the real estate is now being sold to corporations. Really? Individual single-family homes are being sold to some form, not the homeowner. And when I don't mean corporations like uh, you know General Motors or Ford, but a bunch of businessmen who get together and say, and maybe probably women too, uh, get together and they'll it buy this. It's 2023. So I know I got to give everybody. Not only do you get the benefits, but you got to take the detriments as well, right? <laughs> so groups of people who want money, they say, you know, let's buy this house. And it may just be six people who formed a prof, who formed a company, and they buy that house and that house and that house. But it's not owned by the Joe Sixpack and his his kids. It's owned by this company who then rents it out. And the rental in Santa Barbara is just out of control. And it's not my phrase, but I love the phrase, we're not going to be able to put the toothpaste back in the tube. We're just not going to be able to do it. Once Santa Barbara was discovered, you know, it's interesting. Historically, uh, much of, well, not much of, almost every benefit we enjoy is because wealthy people have come here. Um, they primarily began to come during World War One, because the south of France, Italy, etc., was closed off because of world, the war. So the East Coast wealthy, you know, the McCormicks and the the Fords and the John Deere tractor family stuff. Well, where are we going to go? There's a place in Santa Barbara. Let's go check out Santa Barbara. So they came little by little, and when they came, they went, "Wow, sweet, great Mediterranean climate." A lot of vacant land. I could put up a house. Typically, they started with their, you know, their crazy uncle, or their child who needed uh, medical attention, and they would build a house and put them there. And then 
over time, they began to realize, the senior members of the, the families began to realize, hey, let's, the whole family's going to come here. So then they began to build in Montecito. They began to build on the Upper East Side. And they brought with them the concept of art museum. Had one back there, why can't we have one here? What do you say we have a symphony? Great idea. What do you say we have an opera? What do you say we build some nice hotels for some of our friends on the East Coast to come out and spend a few nights without having to buy real estate, see what it's like? That begins this trend of this incredibly powerful base that Santa Barbara has, which we all don't want to acknowledge and we hate the idea of it sometimes. That stayed slow but steady throughout the 20s, the 30s, and World War II. In the 50s, it began to grow a little bit. In the early 70s, the Hollywood began to find Santa Barbara. And they came in and began to provide the wealth. <clears throat> and I'm tying this all back into the we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube concept. Right. Then computers came in. The guy who's living in Montecito can stay in touch with the Hollywood studios as easily from Santa Barbara as he can from Sunset and Vine. It's all computer stuff. So that means they can come up here in even larger numbers. And when they come, they bring their money and they just reinforce this glorious community that has all the attributes of a very civilized million people town. They buy up parks. They donate land for parks. We have something like, I want to say it, this could be wrong, but it's close, 56 parks. We have an airport. On the Planning Commission, we used to talk about, well, let's compare Santa Barbara to other towns of 90,000 people, and you know, how do we compare? Had to stop that comparison right there. No town of 90,000 people has you know, 12 miles of beach, an airport, 56 parks. We have our own lake. That's the Montecito people. They said, you know what? In the summer it gets dry and the creek dries up. What are we going to do about water? Well, let's build a lake. Let's buy some land, put up a dam, and build a lake. How are we going to get the water? Oh, we'll dig a tunnel. What other town of 90,000 people could pull that off? So those things piling up over time and through history have created this incredibly unique, very sophisticated town. And when the wide world sees it, they go, I want to be part of that. How can I be part of that? So the builders, I'm going to tie this back into housing, the builders go, you know what? There's almost an unlimited number of wealthy people that will buy a little condo. Mm -hmm. And they don't even care if it's 900 square feet. They'll buy a 900 square foot condo. We used to build 2,000 square foot condos. Let's build 900 square footers. So we now grapple with how do you keep Joe Sixpack? You know, when I came here, Santa Barbara had its own bread company. All the bread came from right down there in the funk zone. Mm. We had two or three dairies. One of the dairies was right over there on the affordable housing lot uh, where Carrillo joins the freeway. We had our own egg farm. Mm. We had all that stuff. The freeway wasn't a freeway. It was in the winter zone. When you used to go to Ventura, the road was blocked in a high tide. The waves would wash over that little road now where they have RVs along the sound by the water. That road would wash over with ocean waves, and it was closed for three days. So you couldn't depend upon truck transportation to bring your goods and services. That 
kept the town relatively small because of those being able to eat. But it also allowed Joe Sixpack to work at the bakery and to, you know, work at the dairy and to do that kind of stuff. Once those freeways opened up, all of our products then began to come from somewhere else. And that, again, changed the fabric. But we still do have worker bees, including myself and you and everybody else, who want to live here. And if they don't live here, the society won't work well. You can't go to Ventura to get your car tuned up. You need a mechanic here. You can't go somewhere else to get the carpenter or the plumber to come and fix it. They need to live here. So when you talk about housing, another component of being able to have housing for the workers is to have the jobs for the workers. And if you recognize that those are typically mechanic, carpenter, plumber, that kind of thing, where's that land going to be? You can't just open up the land to high-density residential. You've got to have land preserved for the car repair and the plumber and things like that so they can live in town and then repair things in town. The city of Santa Barbara meagerly but intellectually saw that when they have the downtown M1s area. I don't know if you're familiar with M1, but only industrial can go there. The city of Goleta has a similar one. I think maybe those should be expanded a little bit um, so that we can ensure that we have uh, just regular people here working. Certainly, I know the school district right now has completely changed their direction. <clears throat> um, the shop classes at Santa Barbara Junior High were actually closed. They, they turned them into English classes and stuff like that because who wants to be a carpenter? And then you get everybody to go to college, and there's not enough jobs for college. Plus, half the kids who were going to college didn't really want to go to college. They just thought they had to go to college. What they really wanted to do was, you know, run a business, some kind of a hand work business. The Chumash Casino is a good example. You know the term whale in the gambling? In Vegas, the term whale means who are our big players. Oh. We're going to give them a free room. A bunch of free nickels, and we want them to go down and gamble because they're going to bring so damn much money, they're going to cover all the expenses plus more. They're called whales. They're all super wealthy, international, corporate, etc. You know who the whales are at the Chumash? They're plumbers, carpenters mm -hmm. that have nine offices in Southern California, mm -hmm. and they, they're a giant plumbing organization, or they're a giant auto dealership, or something else. It's way below the radar of what you and I would think is a rich guy. But they're rich. Mm -hmm. And they came at it from using their hands and just doing trade stuff. And finally, the education community is discovering that. And going, like DP's uh, Science Academy is a good example. They realize, hey, let's, let's train these people to do this. this uh, they don't have to be big corporate people. They can do things with their hands. Those kinds of people that do things with their hands, that are craftspeople, they need to have housing here as well. They could come back and forth, but they need to have housing here, I think, also. So when you, you see, when you talk about this question of, you know, housing, you begin to touch into what are they teaching the kids at school? Are they teaching everybody to get a college degree? Or are they teaching them to stay in Santa Barbara and be an auto mechanic and, and, and be proud of it? Uh, that's great. That's great. No, that's, that's a great history lesson, too, because many of us sort of, feel as though the way things are is just how they've always been and sometimes we forget well somebody started this somebody saw these trends somebody created what yeah. we enjoy and so as we're thinking about 
the future, it's important to know how we got here. And essentially, it sounds like you're saying that Santa Barbara has always been a place for the super wealthy, and it will continue to be that way. And there are things government can do, but uh, to sort of expect it to be anything than what it's always been in any dramatic way is just not going to happen. Let me add one other thing. Um, you know Dave Davis? Oh, yeah. He was he was a uh, community development director, city city planner, I think, at first. But back in his day, and I don't know whether he commissioned it or not, but the city of Santa Barbara commissioned a study called, I want to say, The Limits of Growth. I think that was the title of it. And they, they, they asked these experts to come and study the following. What if we never built another building from Carpinteria to Gaviota? What would that be like? On the other end of the rainbow, what if we built whatever the hell from Carpinteria to Gaviota? Just build <laughs> it. Whatever. Build it. And in between, we had the various stages of, well, what if we limited growth, but we allowed this thing? Or what if we limited growth, but we allowed these other two things, you know, like affordable housing or more commercial or, or more ranches? All these various things in a rainbow from no building to build whatever the hell you want. The interesting takeaway was building whatever the hell you want from Carpinteria to Gaviota did not lower the price. Hmm. Because the developers go out beyond uh, Sandpiper Golf Course and they say we're going to build some houses. Are they going to build cheap ones? Hell no. <laughs> right? Because we're in Santa Barbara. Yeah. We've got a university. We've got museums. We've got an orchestra. We've got a beach. Why the hell would you build something small? So they build all the way to Gaviota and it's still going to be expensive. Right. And it will always be expensive. So that's why I say government has to step in at some point and just carve out something for the worker bees so they can continue to live here. And, 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 because I, I don't want to lose this, housing, transportation, and build up a transportation network also. You know, Brian, everything you say is, is exactly why in my old age I've learned to appreciate that kind of wisdom and that kind of experience, and it matters. You know, back in the day when I was covering City Hall, and you remember this, and we had our ups and downs from a reporting perspective, you don't really know what you're covering in the moment. It's not until you have time to reflect and compare to other things. And back in the day, I was trying to be a hotshot reporter at the news press and break every story I could with no sense of empathy or nuance. Um, everything was a story, and I wanted to jump on it and do it. And then now, you know, maybe this just comes with age. You get a little bit uh, laid back a little bit, you know. But I want to talk about those old, those, those, those early days, those days in the early 2000s when I was covering City Hall. And you were a real estate appraiser, and you got elected to the city council. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you? You had been on the planning commission you had served, you've been sort of the core and the guts of the city, and now you're running for council and you win. So take us back there. What, what was that like for you, and what was, your, what was your goal and your plans at that time? <clears throat> um, my first entry into that world was through Peabody School. Um, we turned it into a charter school when uh, Gary Hart passed the charter school legislation back in the late 90s. 
And we had a very nice, uh, Pat Morales was a principal who wanted the school to do well. And we had several teachers, uh, I think Roger Earls and uh, Nancy Cole as some, but the teachers all wanted a better school. Uh, primarily it had to do with uh, all of our funding that was associated with the campus first went through the downtown offices and then they allocated it to us. So we got together and we thought, let's become a charter school, and I, I helped write that from the parental standpoint. There was a teacher standpoint, and there was a principal standpoint. We put the document together, and we got it. And I became the president of the governing council for the first maybe two or three years. It was then that I realized how these things work. Um, for example, <clears throat> this number is probably not right, but generally it is. This, the school, the Peabody School under the old way was getting say $200,000 a year for maintenance. But at the end of the year, we had only spent $110,000. That meant there was $90,000 left over. Where did it go? Well, it went back again to downtown, and they did other things with that $90,000. They allocated $200,000, knowing it would not be used, knowing we'd only use one hundred and ten, and then they would take the $90,000 back at the end of the year, and that's the way they padded the way they spent their money. I didn't know that's how budgets work, but that's how they work. Mm -hmm. I got a glimpse into that, and I now know how the state works and the federal government works, everybody. These budgets are a little bit phony. <laughs> so one of the things we did as a governing council, we said, well, why don't we take over the maintenance? So we went to a really forward-thinking uh, Gary Kasten. I want to say it's, his name was Kasten, superintendent. Michael, Michael, Michael. Kasten, superintendent of the school district. He was a forward-thinking guy back in those days, too, and he said, that's a good idea. 200000 is all yours. We'll give you, we'll give you the 200000 You spend one hundred and ten like you normally do, and you'll have 90000 to do something else with. Mm -hmm. Then we began to look and say, well, do we need to spend 110000 Could we hire a general contractor who's 50 years old to come and be our maintenance guy, and he'd handle everything, the locks, the windows, the whole thing? Yeah, and he'll do it for 90000 so instead of 100, so that frame of mind, I thought, wow, now that I own this, maybe I could get on the school board. I run for the school board. <laughs> uh, your newspaper in the morning edition had me as the winner, but I didn't win. I lost to Steve Forsell by like 150 votes. Oh, wow. Darn. Which is a crushing blow. About a month later, Harriet Miller you remember her? Great oh, yes. mayor for the city of Santa Barbara. She gets a hold of me. She calls me on the phone. And this goes back to what I said earlier about bringing up people through the ranks to later serve on the council. Harriet Miller understood that very well. She says, Brian, I saw you ran for school board. Didn't make it. She says, you ever thought about working with the city on one of our commissions? I said, well, yeah. She said, how about the planning commission, <laughs> which is the, the top of that whole yeah. pile? Well, she gave that offered to me because of my experience in real estate, and, and she saw me as some wanted to be a player, right, because I ran. I said, wow, that'd be great. And then she, because she was an inf she could influence anybody, I got elected to the Planning Commission by a vote of the City Council. And then I was off and running. But I had also, prior to that, been on an outfit which I adored called the uh, Rental Housing Mediation Task Force. Because you, you could start little, right? I remember going into Sheila Lodge years ago. I tried out Tried to get on a commission a couple times and hadn't made it. And I thought, what the hell? So I go into Sheila Lodge. She says, can I help you? I said, yeah. 
is this a fixed, is this, a, is this whole routine fixed, or can a guy actually get on a commission? She <laughs> says, what do you mean? I said, I've tried twice. I can't make it. What do I have to do? You have to know you guys? She said, oh, I'm so sorry. She said, no, no, no. She said, we can, what do you want to do? Then I got my foot in the door, yeah. and then Harriet Miller got me on the planning commission. So that's how I began to get into it. Now, running for the city council, um, I would not put campaigning on my worst enemy. <laughs> I would not. No, I'm, I'm telling you straight away true. Yeah. It's, it guts you. It absolutely guts you. And I will give you one little short story, and then we can move on, and we'll talk about those historical days. But when I ran... Every time I went out and talked to people on the campaign trail, I would come back just twisted, knotted on the inside. And I could, I'm a public speaker. I'm not worried about talking. But something was bothering the hell out of me, and I couldn't figure out what it was. So I just thought, I'm going to ponder this for a while. So I took about a half an afternoon off, and that's all I thought about. Walked up and down the beach trying to, what, and I, oh, my God. That's what it is. And it's this. And I give this to anybody who's going to be on a campaign trail. On the campaign trail, you do two things that your mother told you were bad manners and don't do them. <laughs> what are they? Well, the first one is ask people for money. You don't do that. That's not done. On the campaign trail, it is. Right. So you got to swallow whatever your training is and do that. And the second one is don't brag about yourself. And those two are the pillars of being able to get elected. Right. And they, they just turn you inside out because you realize those are not good things. Yeah. So anyway, I get on the city council. And for some reason, maybe it's just my own makeup, I always considered myself a citizen of this town and a steward of its beauty and its history and everything. I never thought I was going to become you know, a member of the state assembly after my time on the city council. So all of my votes, all of my decisions were based on that fact. How do you be a steward? How do you help? How do you work just this community? I was emboldened in that thought process because I had spent time in the city framework on the planning commission and on the rental housing mediation task force. I knew the job of staff. They're there to serve us. We're not there to serve them. This council beginning to understand that, but they really don't understand that yet. That staff is there to serve the council. In that regard, for the Hemplo, the funk zone was just coming in to its own. Harriet Miller, God bless her, she said, well, let's go look at it. <laughs> and we're all thinking, what does that mean, let's go look at it? Well, let's get in our cars and we'll go park down there and we'll walk around. <laughs> I'll never forget that. So, yeah. The full planning commission, the full city council, maybe half the uh, of the architectural board review. Just walk around. This has been empty for years. Who owns that? Well, the Castagnols own it. They used to do fish stuff there. Blah 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 blah. And we got a sense of that. And then Harriet Miller says, "Well, why don't we get some people in town to talk about what we're going to do?" <laughs> got a hold of Dave Davis, uh -huh. and Dave said, "Well." Um, Let's get everybody in town, not a downtown State Street, 17 people figuring out what the hell to do with State Street. Let's get everybody in town. Yeah. What does that mean? Members of the churches, the boys club, the uh, 
the Chamber of Commerce, uh, people from the Planning Commission, uh, people from here, from, and we put together, and I want to say it was like 80 people, 80 or 85 people. We all meet in the Falcon Room at the library. They say, we're going to divide you up into groups of five. We're going to go down and we're going to cover the funk zone. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to look at housing. We're going to retail. We're going to look at roads. We're going to look at traffic patterns for cars. And and we divided ourselves up into these groups of five or six. And I, I, my group was uh, Bill Levy. Remember Bill Levy? Oh, yeah. yeah. Everybody hated the guy. He was one of those rich people and powerful. And does whatever the hell he wants. Well, it turns out it wasn't. He was just a guy. Mm -hmm. And when he sat in this group of five, you could tell he's just a guy. Yeah. Anyway... When that was all over and everybody had covered the topic that their little group was assigned for, we come back in the Faulkner Gallery and we put it all on a big board. And then we discussed it. When we finally came to the conclusions of what to do with the funk zone, how to handle that, it was called the waterfront visioning was the name of that thing. Everybody in the room had a little bit of ownership, which made the whole thing work better when it got implemented. The churches, the rich people, the poor people, the worker bees, everybody got their two cents in. Basically, as you probably know through history now, uh, we kind of let it alone. The, the coastal law requires that anything in the coastal zone be basically for visitor serving or tourist oriented. So you can't put a dentist office down there. It's got to be visitor serving or tourist oriented. We didn't even know what that meant. That's why we did the study. We let the marketplace come in, and now you can see it's very vibrant in what's going on. But those were the kind of exciting things that the council did to lay a groundwork for the future. Because we had leaders who had, like myself, come up through the ranks, right. had an understanding of the community, and had a stewardship concept. No one I knew really wanted to, like I said, become members of the assembly or go to the Senate or anything. We were Santa Barbara people, and we cared. And then we were also the same kind of people who knew we own a lake, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the governance of that was far more sophisticated and knowledgeable. Those people on the city council and the, the planning commission were sophisticated and knowledgeable. They're not that now. And, I, <laughs> and I'm not, I don't want to beat them up because right. they're, they're the products of district election pretty much. Yeah. And you can argue district election much as you want, but it's kind of the basis of government for us. I mean, that's why we have a House of Representatives. That's why we have a state assembly. We don't want a bunch of rich fat cats up there. We want to spread it out around, you know, widely. So, but it's flawed in its beginnings because of what I said. Well, you know, people just, I don't want to run for city council. Yeah. What the hell does that mean? I don't know. And then they get up there and... <clears throat> They have to do so much homework because they haven't sat on any of these other boards or commissions. Yeah. And they're not doing that homework. They're really not, I want to say, shouldering the full responsibility of realizing, and this is something that I didn't realize until, I mean, the planning commission is one thing and all these other things I sat on another. But when you're on the city council, you're a legislative body. You're just like Congress. You make laws. Those guys don't get that. Yeah. They don't realize they're a legislative body. Right. And they are responsible for creating laws that are in the best interests of the community. Another thing that annoys the Jesus out of me is Robert's Rules of Order basically says 
You are a decision-making body. The word decision is in it. Right. You're a decision-making body. You don't get to abstain unless you don't have enough information. Yeah. But to abstain just simply because you don't want to be part of the controversy, you want to appeal to both the Democrats and the Republicans, so abstain. That's, can I say chicken shit? Yeah, because it is chicken shit. <laughs> and so you, what do you get then is you get a, a, a legislative body that is are not leaders, and they don't show guts. Uh, one of my problems, one of the reasons that I did not get reelected, which I found interesting, there were a couple of things, one of which was the uh, the guy took a dislike to me that was uh, Armstrong in your newspaper. That Oh, yeah, the editorial was, page editor. Oh, God. Yes. Um, one of them was my stand on um, the St. Francis Hospital remodel. There's a neighborhood over there called the... Uh, they call it the cottage or something like that, that neighborhood right by St. Francis. They're very politically active. Um, that's not quite right. Anyway, um, <clears throat> and I said, let's knock down that building and let's put up. They came out of the woodwork. <laughs> oh, okay. They said, no, 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 we want to preserve it. It's part of the history. I said, well, if they'd ever taken a tour of it, the St. Francis Hospital is skanky, horrible. Uh, cottage had already opened up their... Uh, neonatal intensive care unit, you know, they were doing forward-thinking stuff and St. Francis was not. So the building was full of rats and it was moldy and it was horrible and creating it for housing, which everybody said we should do, it was impossible. The building wasn't made for it. So they knocked it down and I lost almost every vote that I had had over there. Because of that, now of course, when you go through that neighborhood, those houses that were built up there are gorgeous. They match the neighborhood yeah. in size and scale and everything else. But at the time, the controversy, and that goes again back to, I wouldn't change my votes because I just thought it was the right thing to do. And it turned out, I mean, not to say I always get do the right thing to do, but that's part of the political process when you abstain or you fail to make a decision just because, you know, you're being uh -huh. mousy about it. That's not doing the right thing. Um, but this council, they don't have the cojones to do those kinds of things. They're, they're constantly being mealy-mouthed about things, and they need to stand up. And they probably need to just decide, you know, I'm here. I'm not going to go up. I'm not going to go any higher. I'm going to stay right here. I want to stay right here of Santa Barbara, and I want to know everything there is to know about Santa Barbara so I can make smart decisions. Um, this housing discussion that we're having, I, I'd be willing to bet, you know, 100 bucks that they don't have any knowledge of some of the things I was telling you about how we got here, that housing needs to be a hyphenated word with transportation, blah, 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 blah. They don't think like that, unfortunately. We just need more affordable housing, Brian, period. That's uh, well, it. that's what I mean. Start and yeah, yeah, over. no, no, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, Let me ask you a little bit about um, police. But by the way, I don't want to beat those people up. I think they're sure. sincere. But they just got thrown into this because of this district election concept. Yeah. And now I would like to suggest to them, okay, make it easier for the next guy in your district. Right. Put him on the Harbor Commission so he knows how the hell this shit works. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely good about the current council in that you can have a guy like Oscar Gutierrez from the west side who grew up there who can actually get elected and serve. Because in the old days, that would never happen. I know, you that's know, good. That's Jay a good Higgins thing. would be on the council. That's a good you know? thing. And so that is really good. But there's a tremendous amount of learning curve that happens and also... Getting them to feel like you're responsible for the whole city, mm -hmm. not just the district mm -hmm. you were elected mm -hmm. to, is a balance. It's mm -hmm. both. It can't mm -hmm. just be one. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you about when the time you were serving, you know, you had 
E.F. Falcone on the council. You had Helene Schneider, I think you served with. Was Roger Horton on the council? Roger Horton was on the council. The mayor was uh, Marty Blow. First it was Helene, excuse me, first it was uh, Marty Marty was the mayor and, and the first other before her was Harriet Harriet Miller. Right. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So when you think back about those, those days, right, what what can you encapsulate about that council? You know, Helene never served she she was on the housing authority, but she or housing commission, but she wasn't on the planning commission. But as I look back at her, just brilliant. I mean just her her you know, politically as far as, you know, when she sat up there to make decisions, brilliant. And really just, you know, I've never seen anyone like that, right? And just, wow. And then she, she could command the room. She could keep order. Um, you had kind of that different level almost, you know. It's almost like re me remembering the NBA, you know. Like, it yeah. used to be so good. Yeah, you know, right. this, you know. But <clears throat> I mean, was better back then, or what do you think of some of those people that you served with, and how were you all able to get get everything done? And obviously, you had conflict and everything, but can you just kind of encapsulate a little bit about the vibe of well, that? Well, I council? think Helene's a good place to start. Yeah. Um, what you're describing about Helene, I'm not sure was there when she was on the council, but it certainly came out when she was mayor. Yeah. And she was mayor because she'd been on the council. She had the ability to be mayor. Right. And that's that part, this concept I'm talking about. Because you did this other stuff before, when you rise up a little higher, you're ready for that. Mm -hmm. Helene on the council was very good, yeah. but her shining moment was when she was mayor. That woman you're describing now was yeah. when she was the mayor. Yeah. But when she was on council, um, I don't want to poo-poo the housing authority. Was that what she was? Uh, she was a housing authority commissioner. I mean, Whatever that was. That room, that's where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. Also... Helene is in HR. Her professional oh, yeah. job is human resources. So she would always bring the human element to the discussion, uh -huh. which many other people did not. And that would shine through, particularly, again, when she got married, that would shine through. She didn't necessarily have to have been on the planning commission. In fact, she didn't know a lot about planning commission planning issues. issues. But she could, she could cover the whole territory with bringing that sensibility that she had. And then she knew how government worked. She knew that staff served us. We didn't serve the staff as a result of her housing commissions. See. Um, and uh, many of the people, like uh, Marty Bloom, I, she might have been on the, I think she was on the uh, planning commission. She was planning commission, yeah. Um, uh, Dr. Dan Secord was up there for a while. That's he right. was on the harbor, and he was on the water. He was planning commissioner, too. Yeah. He was, yeah. he was, uh, yeah, he was, he was, yeah, Dr. Dan was a good egg. Um, Dr. So Dan anyway. would, would, you know, he, he cut me off for six months one time because he didn't like a story. <laughs> oh, he was a little you know? bit. Do you know what his background was? I, I cut him a lot of slack because uh -huh. he did that to me a couple of times. In fact, maybe the fact that I did not get reelected the second time was because he, he came out after me. He did not want me reelected. Really? So whatever Republicans may or may not have voted for me, he made sure they didn't. And it had to do with his running for, I think he was running for supervisor oh, yeah, at the yeah. time, and there was some form of a public meeting at some point, and I, I took a stand for his opponent. And I had always been in favor of him, because he was... Is Dr. Dan uh, coming down on you right there. Well, oh, from then until the day he died. <laughs> but um, he had been on the planning commission with me. Yeah. Uh, I remember I got the biggest... You know, it's, this is the other thing. When you're sitting on these boards and commissions, 
you want what you say to carry the day. Everybody's looking for, God, I, I hope nobody else has thought about this because I've got the solution. I'm going to say it out loud. I'm going to phrase my words so that Josh Malidi in the audience quotes me in the newspaper. There's that kind of ego trip going on, right? Not kind of, it's for real. Um, <laughs> Dr. Dan announced uh, that he was going to run for city council. And he won and he left. So he spent his last, his last meeting at the Planning Commission. I remember I said, ah, heavy hangs the head that wears the crown. <laughs> <laughs> and he laughed so much because, you know, when you step up to the council, it's a much heavier job than the Planning Commission. You get to tell it like it is. On the council, you got to watch your words. Um, but the council that I sat on, every one of them thought of themselves as stewards. I mean, uh, Roger Horton didn't plan on going to Congress. He wanted to be, he was a Santa Barbara guy. He ran business there. He cared about the city. Um, I know Marty did the same way. Helene, I think, saw as far as maybe being mayor. Ia was supposed to be mayor, but Ia had a little, uh, had some trouble. And uh, the consequence of that was that she lost all of her support. She'd been a, a police supporter and a fire supporter, which is a very, very significant a group of people to have on your side, <clears throat> which that goes back to another thing. Getting elected, you got to suck up to all these various components of the community. Oh, awful. The police union, <laughs> fire union, the SEIU. Am I doing that right? Yeah. Um, and if you don't, then they'll tell their members not to vote for you. Right. And then you don't get elected. Right. And you, when you sit and watch the city council up there, you don't realize that behind them, maybe nationally you do, but in the behind them they've got these huge powerful organizations that, I'll tell you what gave you, uh, uh, Tobes, Michael Tobes, now dead and buried below these many years, and a wonderful man, a great benefactor. Yeah. <laughs> he gave me, for my council, $10,000. That's a lot of money. Nice. My whole campaign was only like sixty or 70000 bucks. <clears throat> then he comes in front of a council. Oh, no. <laughs> and I'm on the council. And he comes with some, I want to say, some cockamamie scheme that just wasn't right. And I voted against it. Oh. And to this day, I can remember looking out into the audience, and there sat Michael Tobes, and he was sending, he wasn't sending darts, and he wasn't sending arrows. He was sending cruise missiles <laughs> right between my eyes, like, Barnwell, you're toast, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Those are the things that go behind a council's ability to make a good decision. I, I, he wanted me to make his decision. I just couldn't do it because I cared about Santa Barbara. Now, had I cared about going to the state assembly or going to the board of supervisors, I probably would have voted in his favor. Right. And when I did run, he'd say, I'm not going to give you 10 this time. I'll give you 50, right. whatever the hell. Because yeah. that's how that system works. That's how government works. And it's sad. So... Sometimes the people that don't get reelected are the ones who stood up, you know, most forcefully for the right thing rather than the most uh, supported by his by his constituency sort of thing. Um, but I, I got to say it was interesting and exciting also to be on the council because everybody wanted to be there. Everybody gave a damn about the town. Everybody paid attention. Everybody knew how to direct the staff to answer their questions rather than the council answering the staff questions. And that was because everyone had been in some lower level uh, commissioner board. And we did a lot of really, really interesting things. Um, 
like what 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 there's a couple excuse me minor things that I would like to have the council do this kind of stuff too I'd like Santa Barbara to become far more a home for artists mm -hmm. we already do a lot of that but we're not doing enough we could do more if we thought about it I used to walk down the main hallway of the city hall blank white walls which to me from my I've been involved with artists and I'm a writer blah 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 I look at those walls and think, man, we should have art up there. Why don't we hang art up there? Public space, we can do that. I brought it up a couple times, got a hold of somebody on the staff, and I said, can we do this? I brought it up in front of the council. Pretty much everybody said, yeah, let's do this. Easy peasy. Crack the gavel, next thing you know, that's an art gallery. Yeah. You walk down there now, there's 40 pieces of art on that. Mm -hmm. Well, whatever that, and I'm not patting myself on the back about that, it's just that that happened to be something I thought about. Other people have other things they can think about. This council doesn't think like that. They're not thinking like that. Where are the empty spaces that we could fill with some cool stuff? Housing is another one. Where is some empty land that we could build with housing? Where is this we could do? And they haven't quite adopted that. I think they're working on it. I think they want to get there, but they're not quite there yet. Another thing that I mentioned, and you were on the newspaper, and you did do just what you said. You're always looking for a story. Um, <laughs> We don't have a newspaper like that anymore. And so hardcore journalism, which is the only thing that keeps government in line, without journalists, that's why it's, that's why it's called out in the Constitution. We don't have that. No. So this council right here, when they do some dumb, stupid thing, and I'm not saying they do a lot of them, but every council does it once in a while, newspaper would be all over you. So you wouldn't do it the next time. They don't have that. We've got, I like the News Hawk. In fact, it's really interesting, but all of my business associates, when I ask them where they get their news, they say News Hawk. I said, did you tell me you thought that was a bunch of hippie, left, weirdo, like online stuff? <laughs> and everybody I know is a, in my generation, is a hard paper, open it up, underline, do the comics, the blah, blah, blah. Also now everybody I know, pulls out the phone and they read it on the phone yeah. and that's where Newshawk comes you work for those guys yeah, right? right that's where Newshawk comes in and a couple and Newshawk does it very well and I want to encourage you to continue to do that because uh, the government needs a watchdog and they ain't got one like they used to have back in the day that you're talking about right. and that sharpened our our pro program we, we got better because of that yeah. we did the waterfront visioning because of that yeah. one that I also got beat up on was the uh, the tsunami line. Do you remember the, <laughs> the tsunami? Blue, was it the blue line? The blue yeah. line. Uh, the enviros, who I've always kind of been on their side because I. <sighs> anyway, the environment potentially going to hell, and we seem to be living in the world where it actually is going to pieces right now. But the environmental community wanted to draw a blue line along the sidewalk and around the city of Santa Barbara, where if and when a tsunami hit, it would go that deep into the town and what buildings would be affected. And it goes pretty far. It goes almost to Haley Street. Completely gobbles up the funk zone. <laughs> so the council thought it was a good idea. Again, going back to don't muck with the uh, power brokers. The brokerage community came out of the woodwork. Are you telling me that I'm going to sell a house to somebody <laughs> and they are going to worry that the tsunami is going to wipe them out? I don't want that. I don't want anybody to know about that. That's where that Frank, Frank Hotchis, didn't he come out of that a little bit? He it's, did. 
Yeah. He did. Uh, and I can see maybe why they didn't want to do it. I mean, there's only so many things government really needs to do, and maybe that isn't one they need to do. Uh, but one of the reasons we came at that was we wanted everyone to be more prepared for disaster. The Montecito floods is a classic example, but you can't prepare people enough for disaster. Um, my wife, who works with the Santa Barbara County Schools right now, is just finished seminars on uh, uh, shootings at schools. We haven't had a shooting at school. The hell, why we worry? We might have one. Why don't we get prepared for that kind of thing? Why don't we get prepared for a tsunami? What are we doing about earthquakes? What are we doing about flooding? What are we doing about all that sort of stuff? City of Santa Barbara, under my, when I was there, uh, we began to alter the building code so that you could no longer take the water that fell on your property and shove it to the street. Mm. You had to absorb it on your own property. Well, that's kind of a weird concept, but then when you look at Mission Creek, you realize that back in the day, if a lot of water fell through Mission Creek, it just flooded all over. That's the way it was. Nature's just that way. Now we've controlled it. Not only that, but now everything is asphalt and concrete, so even more water is going there, creating more floods. So the blue line was a function of this disaster preparedness, but we all, it was a disaster. It was a disaster. You know, someday I'll get enough guts to reach out to Ia Falcone and ask her to be on my podcast. Uh, you remember those days, and yeah. she hated me with a passion. Yeah, she did. And, uh, <laughs> uh, like, at, at levels greater than anyone today hates yes. me with a passion. It, you, you really have which to Which is be, a pretty big level, so go beyond that. Is... You, you had to be there, you know, and so... Um, and I never hated her, but I, I did get annoyed with sort of her her politicking, right? But looking back, it would be great to have some kind of brain like that on the council who's thinking long term. Um, we have good people on the council, but you know, as we've talked about, it's it's sort of a different vibe. You know, everyone's mm -hmm. still kind of mm -hmm. newish. Mm -hmm. We'll leave Randy off this for a while. Randy's been there forever. Mm -hmm. But for those of you who, who for, those, for people watching, who have no idea what happened in the 2000s, just talking about council chambers, what was it like to work with Ia and be able to, to, to sort of be on her side, be against her? Can you kind of describe what it, she was like? She wasn't the mayor, but in many ways, and she drove Marty crazy. She, she, she was, she wanted to be the mayor, and in some ways, she, in some cases, she, she might have been to some people, but can you, can you describe that Ia presence back in the early 2000s? Um, we were all a product of our upbringing. I was going to mention earlier that Dan Secord was an orphan. Oh. He lived in orphanages yeah. where if you didn't muscle the other guy out of the way to get your food, you weren't getting that much food. Yeah. That's generally the concept. And that's where Dr. Dan came from. And he achieved so much. He was a pilot. He was this. He was that. Because that upbringing made him that kind of man. Ia was the, was the daughter of a Hollywood movie star. Uh, if you've ever seen Police Academy... <laughs> He is the old guy, uh, hilarious old guy, uh, in that movie. And so she was privileged. And she felt that what she said should carry the day. She, she knew it should. 
Um, and she'd also lived in New York City, where if you live in New York or if anyone's ever had the opportunity to live there, that's where the big girls live. <laughs> so she brought that sensibility to Santa Barbara, like, okay, you people are in the colonies. I come from the mothership, right. and this is how these things ought to be done. Mm -hmm. uh, and she carried that kind of, I guess it's arrogance, but it was civilized arrogance, and it wasn't. Uh, necessarily pushy, but it was just like I said, she came from a mothership and we're out here on some colony. Um, she also was a strong advocate of the unions, and her elections were directly dependent upon her association with police and fire. And for some reason, she took a shine to me and helped me on my initial campaign, uh, which again, Coming up through the ranks, my campaign was supported by, you know, Harriet Miller and a few other people who would turn to other experts and say, give this guy, you know, a hand, because we're, and it took a shine to me. And so um, she was a big help in getting me elected. And her husband, um, name I can't think of right now. Vince. What? Vince. At the yeah, time. Vince. 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 Yeah. Um, <clears throat> He and I shared, we were both in the Army during the Vietnam era together, so oh. we shared that. Uh, he was her, uh, what do I say, right hand, he was her Haldeman almost to the Nixon. Took a lot of the photographs, did a lot of the PR writing and things like that, and I got to know them both well. Um, but she was, the word would be imperious, you know, emperor type, yeah. imperious. Uh, and I don't even know if she particularly knew that she was coming across that way, but she did. She butt-headed with Dr. Dan Secord all the time because of that. But she considered herself a steward of the community. The only other higher office that she sought was mayor. And as you said, she kind of acted like mayor, and everybody kind of thought, well, she will be the next mayor. But then she ran into a little bit of trouble that lost her some of her support. So she moved out of town uh, rather abruptly. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we kind of miss her. but. Uh, she was quite something, and she, when she flipped on the microphone and she talked about any issue, whatever it was, she spoke as if, uh, you know, what is it when the Pope speaks the Word of God? <laughs> when she flipped on the microphone, yeah. this isn't just me talking, this is God talking. Right. Um, yeah, she was quite something. Um, you know, when you spoke, you, you always were able to, like you're doing on this show, bring in history, literary references, and it never felt like you were trying. Uh, sometimes you can tell they're trying. They're yeah, trying yeah. to be quoted. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. they're coming up with a soundbite. You seem to be able to just kind of, sometimes it rambles, sometimes it's stream of consciousness. <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter. You have so many different tools in, in your head to say things. Did you... Did you ever prepare as far as, like, I want to be quoted, or did you just go no. up there and talk based off of how you were feeling in that moment? Yeah, yeah. Again, you, you know, you're the product of how you are, and, and not only how you're raised, but how you popped out. I mean, you're a father, too, yeah. and you know that in the first year of life for your kid, you go, whoa, and now they're, whatever, 20, and you can see it then, and you can see it now, right? They come out a certain way, and I have never been afraid of, you know, talking to people. And, and I just played this game with a couple of my business associates just the other day. Came to me for some reason, I don't know why. What would be the theme of your life? Uh, and it's interesting, 
you know, you like for example, for many women, to give you an example of how you'd answer that, well, their family, their theme is their family, their moms, they take care of the kids, they cook, that's their theme, their theme is family. Some people's theme is money. I have several friends who've never really paid a hell of a lot of attention to their wives or the kids or anything. They just want money. What do they want money? Uh, some people's theme is health. One of my business associates, he mentioned, I think the theme of my life, I've always wanted to be healthy. He said, my family died early, very young age. I've been taking care of myself. Wherever I am, hotel, visiting, do a little walk, do a little run, do a little swimming. We were talking about this just the other night, and my wife, Cammie, said, well, I think your theme, one, and you don't have to have one, you can have a couple. She said, I think one of your themes is curiosity. I pondered that for two days, because she only told me that two days ago, and I think she's right. Um, and not everybody has it, not because they don't want it or whatever, but, you know, you're just hardwired in certain ways, and I've always been curious since my earliest days. And I think that has helped me, you know, pull in all this information about the history or whatever without even thinking about it. You know, it's not like I'm studying or anything. I'm just really curious about this and how that happened. And in some position like on the, on the city council, that curiosity has brought with it all this knowledge and experience that I kind of hang on to just because I'm curious about things. And as far as public speaking uh, and being on a council, because you've got to be a public speaker, and just being able to wing it, so to speak, um, I was the student body president of my my high school, uh, and I did it because I was in love with this girl who had gorgeous legs, and she used to wear short skirts all the time. And she sat behind me in Spanish, and I remember and she, thinking, God, I, you know, just so gorgeous. But she had a boyfriend who was out of high school. He was like 20, and she was like eight, 17, and I remember thinking, well, you can't compete with that. But one day she said, we're having the elections for student buddy president. She said, you'd be a great student buddy president. Well, from that moment on, all I could think about was becoming student body president because I thought, sure, she'd fall in love with me, which, of course, she didn't. <laughs> but when I got into that running for student body president, I, I looked around at the other people running, and one was the captain of the football team and the captain of the basketball team. They didn't know how to take a microphone wow. and just talk to people about stuff. And I didn't realize that I had this skill until early on. I thought, wow, these guys are stumbling through these words. They can't even put the words together. And, of course, my major, my major has, always, has been English since I was a little kid, so those things facilitated my sitting on the council. But I never put together phrases that I thought were quotable so that, you know, that you'd pick them up and be quotable. But I, uh, I, I usually wasn't at a loss to talk about a topic because my curiosity yeah. had filled that. Whether I spoke correctly or not, I don't know. But uh, you know, I, that background came from my natural curiosity. Let me ask you about your upbringing. Um, you mentioned you were in the army, right? And, that, and you were in Vietnam. War. No, I, w I was Vietnam in the Vietnam War. I didn't go to Vietnam. Yeah. Okay, Just but what did, what did your parents do? And the reason I'm sort of asking is, I, I mean, obviously I've said it a few times. Your intellect seems to be genetic natural you re, I, you remember every little detail well <laughs> well maybe you know we yeah. all we all age right yeah but, right but in your right. you know in your prime you would you it's, it's okay charlie don't worry it's all right I, <laughs> no it's, i've been called you probably called me much worse <laughs> privately no uh, but talk to me a little about your upbringing and what, what did your parents do and your writing 
right? I've seen your writing, right? You know, and you you, you could you know you, emails you sent me, uh, letters, you know, like you, you're not an average writer. You're a very high level writer. So talk to me about where that comes from. Well, I run into big businessmen often, and they'll say things like. <coughs> I'm a self-made man. <laughs> you know, you run into people like yeah. that, right? They're all on my own. And I always want to say, so help me out here. You picked your kindergarten, right? You and your mom <laughs> sat down and you had decided I want to go to this kindergarten. You picked your aunt and uncle. You picked your mom and dad. No, you did not. You are a product of these things that came to you as a gift almost. And some people, the gift was horrific. You had a alcoholic father and a drug addict mother and they whipped you every day and you didn't choose that you got it I got a really good family my brother and I talk about it all the time and I, I just have to say I'm, I'm a lucky duck uh, my dad well you might like this side story I'll, I'll be quick you know why I'm in Santa Barbara we talked earlier about well uh, none of us we're all lucky to be here right how do we get here? Well, I'm here because of Bunny, the cute blonde. Bunny. Mm -hmm. Bunny, who I have never met. But she's the reason I'm here. And that lays out this way. <clears throat> in 1936, my dad uh, entered junior college down in Los Angeles. And he had a buddy who'd come up here to the State Teacher College, which is the Riviera Theater back in the day. And the buddy wrote him a letter back in the days of letters and said, you got to come to Santa Barbara. They do this thing called Fiesta in the summertime. It's really fun. Come on up. So my dad gets in his uh, Model A Chevrolet and he drives up and he gets her for Fiesta. And he meets Bunny. <laughs> and he falls in love. Oh, okay. So he tells his friend Charlie here, he said, okay, I'm going back down. I'm going to get my stuff. I'm going to come back. I'm going to roll in this school. So back in the day, he went down to the junior college he was in, and they actually give you your file. In those days, he puts it under his arm, and he drives back up, and he enrolls at the state teacher college up here. He says, okay, where's money? And everybody said, you've got to be kidding me. Money left two weeks ago. She said, you were only one of ten on her list. She, she got the better one, and she's gone. My dad looked around and said, well, it's a nice town. I guess I'll stay. So he stayed. And he went to that school, got a degree. After the and then he ended up in ended up in the war. He was in the navy and overseas for six years on the high seas. Uh, marries my mom. And they come back to Santa Barbara to live here, but it's so sleepy. You know, take the uh, thing I was telling you earlier about the road squeezed down and ocean water over the top and all that. You couldn't get to Santa Barbara half the time, or you didn't want to. There was nothing here. So I was born and raised in Los Angeles, but we kept coming up here all the time. But my mother was if. My mother was a tremendously brilliant, smart, but she's, she's a classic woman of the 50s who didn't know where to go with that, right? She just raised kids, and then what? What are you supposed to do then? You can't get into the corporate world, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. Plus, it was seen as the thing she should do. She shouldn't be trying to go and do those things, and so she didn't. But she brought, for me at least, the intellect that liked the symphony and the, you know, the art and stuff like that. My own father was, as my business partner today says, you know, Brian, 
I always liked your father better than I liked you. <laughs> and it's true, my dad was a wonderful, wonderful man. So that's the family I grew up in. I grew up in a family with much love. I had one brother. Uh, my family had a sense of uh, exploration. So we would go on weekend car trips. And we'd go to Monterey or Santa Barbara or San Diego. We'd go to the, you know, the zoo in San Diego. We would frequently drive to Hollywood and go to a nice restaurant in Hollywood, those kinds of things. So my world had expanded by virtue of who my mom and dad were. And I guess the curiosity was probably a component of that. But my view of the world and how to interact with it came from the way they interacted with it. And they always interacted uh, igualmente. Everyone, no one was higher or lower. Everyone was just somebody to get to know. Um, and we, we raised in a track house. My dad also was a carpenter, and he built the house that I was raised in. My granddad was a carpenter, so I come from a long line of that. Um, and that's another thing. To go back to my comment earlier about, you know, meeting tradespeople in the community, that's the tradition that I grew up in. And there's really nothing more satisfying than taking a couple pieces of wood that just look like wood and then doing something with them, turning into a chair or a table or a house. Uh, it's very satisfying. And it also gives you a sense of how to modulate your activities, realizing that I got a big thing at the end, I'm going to finish this as a house, but right now I'm just doing a door. And then I'll do a window. And then I'll do this and I'll do that. And when I turn around and look, but that's what I brought to the Peabody Charter School. Everybody's going, when are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? And I'd say, turn around and look back where we were. You can see how far we've come. But it's all these little steps, right? You don't really know you're covering a lot of ground because you're only doing a little bit at a time. So you learn, turn around and look back. That is, those are the kinds of things that I learned. Another just sidebar is my dad used to tell the story of hitchhiking across the country in 1935 or 37, somewhere in there. You know, there weren't very many roads, and he hitchhiked all the way across. He had all these great adventures. We got to New York City. He saw the war looming. And so he went back and enrolled with the Navy, and that's another story. But I was like, I'd like to hitchhike across the country. So when I was in college at UCSB, I got mono, and I had to drop out. And in those days, uh, we dropped out, you got drafted. Mm. So I dropped out, and I came home, and I thought, well, I got a couple months. So I hitchhiked across the country as a result of having been raised in a family where that kind of adventure was what you did. And those kinds of things, like hitchhiking across the country, they give you, or at least they gave me, a sense of what the country's made of. And, you know, like Abraham Lincoln said, the Lord must have loved common people because he made so many of them. <laughs> that kind of thing, right? And you get that sensibility when you do those, when those are your kinds of adventures. Uh, and that's direct result of my mom and dad. So that's, that's who I am. And you must read a lot. Right, you must I be do. reading because you, you, your literary references are easy, and you have one for almost every. I read about a book, at least a book a week. So I'm reading, you know, 30, 40, 50 books a year. And you've always been that way. Always, and I've always been fascinated by, you know, things like I love physics. I thought I was going to go into physics, mm -hmm. but I had an ability to write, which I think I learned from Mark Twain. My dad used to read to us when we were kids. We'd get in the big bed where he and mom, their big bed and, and he would read Mark Twain to us and nobody can turn a phrase like Mark Twain. So that's another component of my ability to write. Uh, and you know, I mean, 
It's just that's just the way I kind of popped out with that. Yeah, uh, the ability to write. Well, you know, Brian, I really appreciate your time. We covered so much, and we could do it another two We're hours. Done? <laughs> <laughs> we can keep going, you know. No, but, thank um, you very much. I, just sort of last question is like, what does the future hold for you? Um, you know, how much gas is left in the tank for public service, for, um, you know, anything? I know you've got some adult kids now, and, you know, you're still a dad. And just uh, what, what does the future look like for, for Brian going forward? That's a good question. I think we should all ask ourselves that all the time. Yeah. Uh, my own asking, phrasing of that question is, what's the five-year plan? Huh. Right? Um, you don't know this, and you won't. Intellectually, you may, but you don't know it in your bones, what it's like to get old. Uh, my father and mother lived here. They came up also from L.A. and finally spent the last 30 or 40 years here in Santa Barbara. And both of them passed away in my arms. And my dad, he would talk about getting old, and I intellectually understood that. I know, you know, you get weaker and blah, 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 and you go to the doctor. I didn't know shit until you're there like I am now. And you realize... Oh, that five-year plan and that ten-year plan, it's a one-year plan or a two-year plan. Actually, you don't even know how long. It could be a 60-day plan because you can't tell. Um, and I think that's one of the problems of aging is, okay, what am I going to do next? What am I going to do now? I don't have this long-range thing where I could study and get a degree or get something. or That's not there. i got to do it right now. So clearly my family is a big deal. Uh, and I love them dearly. And if someone asked me what's my greatest achievement, I, I think it's my kids. Um, the love of my life is my wife. I adore her. 